Welcome to Humans of Magic, the podcast that gets deep and personal with your favorite Magic the Gathering personalities. I'm your host, James Sue. This is episode 53 with Jonathan Zhang. Jonathan is a Canadian Magic player best known for his mastery of the Grisho brand deck in the modern format. In 2018, Jonathan finished fourth in Grand Prix Toronto. That same year, he teamed up with Cyrus Cormangill and Marcus Thibault to win the Star City Games Team Open in Las Vegas. He is a regular member of the First Strike podcast and can be found on Twitter as FinoNub. Magic achievements aside though, I first got word of Jonathan through his teammate Cyrus. I was getting ready to interview Cyrus for this podcast. You can check out episode 47 for that. And Cyrus put in a glowing recommendation for him. He said, James, Jonathan's got a super interesting life story. Go talk to him. So I did my research, met up with Jonathan in Vancouver, Canada, as that's where he's based and where I grew up. One thing led to another. I really enjoy meeting him. And we ended up having this conversation. Before we begin, let's give a shout out to our sponsors. Music in this episode is brought to you by Kupla. Kupla is an amazing artist and his music has become part of my everyday listening rotation. We actually met while playing Magic in London. Super chill guy, check him out on all the places you find music, including SoundCloud and Spotify. Humans of Magic is sponsored by ChannelFireball.com. Channel Fireball is the place to go for all of your magic needs, with a huge selection of sealed product, singles, accessories, and more. And if you want to level up your magic game, there's a ton of great strategy content on the CFB website. See, I've become hooked on playing Arena Limited. Absolutely, terribly hooked. As a result, I've been watching and studying all of CFB's great limited content. Luis and Marshall, Ben Stark, Andrea Mangucci, Mike Sigris. There is so much collective wisdom to be found, and it's all there, and it's all free. Humans of Magic is also sponsored by Cardboard Live. Cardboard Live transforms the way you interact with Magic broadcasts, complete with player deck lists, real-time standings, metagame analysis, and more. If you're a streamer and you're streaming Magic, then you're going to love using Cardboard Live. It works for Magic Arena, Magic Online, and even your local paper tournament. It's super easy to use and completely free. To get started, visit cardboard.live. Last but not least, I've got an exciting project on the way. I am working on the Humans of Magic book, which is a collection of interviews with the finest magic personalities on the planet. Think of it as an extension and greatest hits version of this podcast. The book features the greatest minds in the game today. Let's list a few. John Finko, Paulo Vitor Damo de Rosa, Jerry Thompson, Luis Scott Vargas, Emma Handy, and many other brilliant minds. I've commissioned exclusive illustrations for the book, so if you're a fan of this show, you're going to love the book too. As a thank you to listeners, I'm giving away free copies of the book. To enter the prize draw and to learn more about the project, visit the Humans of Magic website at humansofmagic.com. Head over there, join the mailing list, and you will be entered into the draw. Once again, that's humansofmagic.com. The Humans of Magic book, it's coming soon. Don't miss it. All right, let's get into it. This is Humans of Magic with Jonathan Zhang.
Hey, Jonathan. How's it going today? I'm good, James. Thanks for having me. How are you doing? Not bad. It's it's morning over here, and I know you're in Vancouver, BC, right? Yeah, it's rainy Vancouver right here. I should say Vancouver, Canada, because sometimes I say Vancouver and people are like, is that the Vancouver in the United States or is that the Vancouver in Canada? Uh, that's fair enough. Uh, definitely, I've been to both. And uh, I got to say, one is better than the other, not, not naming names. I really look forward to doing this today because I've always wanted to get more Canadian guests on the show, me being from Canada. And I think other than you, there might have been just KYT. I think that's how it is. So you might be the second guest on the show. Hopefully I can blaze the trail then because, uh, uh, yeah, KYT has been working hard to promote Canadian talent as well. And uh, I've been a fan of your work. Um, I've listened to some of the uh, previous Humans of Magic podcasts. And, uh, yeah, I mean, they have been pretty honest, open and profound uh, interviews. So hopefully I can uh, I can uh, do it justice here. Yeah, I'm sure you will. And thank you for the for the compliment. Jonathan, what's been going on with you lately? Have you been playing a lot of Magic? Yeah, I think uh, more than I should actually. But yeah, I've been I've been uh, on a crazy uh, Magic spree here. Um, I'm always like, this is a hobby that I really like, and I, I kind of have a pretty addictive personality, so to speak. So when I dig my heels into something, I'll always um, pour a hundred ten percent of my attention here, even if it's at the expense of other stuff. I also like trying new things. So, like, I made it. I made it a goal um, for listeners who doesn't know. Like, I barely played standard um, when I qualified for a Pro Tour Dominaria in Richmond last year. Um, I hadn't played a game of standard. I hadn't played a game of limited. And if you can imagine, I didn't do that well in that um, in the Pro Tour there. So, I've been trying to um, trying to expand my range, so to speak, uh, using poker uh, poker terms and. Uh, um, I made it a fun goal for myself to study um, War of the Spark standard and put my uh, pour my effort into it and become an expert at it. And I think I did. Um, I made some cyborg guides for First Strike Nation that ha- that won my friend Marcus an MC invite, as well as helping some other um, uh, First Strike and other related uh, friends uh, their MCQ top eights, which is great. And I think I'm going to uh, Grand Prix Vegas as well as Grand Prix Seattle as well, So, which are Modern Horizon uh, Limited. So I made it kind of a fun uh, goal to kind of try to get myself ramped up in Limited and try to master Modern Horizon, I'm setting a goal of at least uh, day two in one of the Grand Prix. So I'm always up to something uh, sinister and uh, degenerate in Magic. Uh, I just actually, while we're recording this, we just... Um, got our first um, 5-0 trophy after the uh, client update on Magic Online with Neoform. So that's also going to be something I'm, I'm going to be working on for the near future. But yeah, there's uh, what I've been doing in Magic. One thing I'm hearing is that it's not only about improving your game, but you're also trying to help other people too in the community, right? Whether it's through sharing tech on First Strike, which is, I think it's, you do that every week, do you not? It's kind of irregular, but whenever I'm trying to prepare for something such as a big event or a PTQ or whatnot, I figure, you know, I, just, I like I like the teaching role, I like the assistance role, and just like doing magic content, it's sort of a creative outlet for me uh, and a break from my daily uh, work and life as well. So it's actually something I really enjoy doing, and uh, I, I try to do it as frequently as, as possible, but I don't do it if I have no reasons to, like if I have no events. It's like anything in life. You need to work towards a goal or a milestone, and that really motivates you, right? 
Exactly, exactly. Jonathan, I know that you've been going or dabbling in standard and limited, but I know that you're really known for your prowess of the modern format. I just wanted to get a sense for how you initially got started in modern, because I think that's really how you made your mark in the competitive magic scene, so to speak, right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Um, I'm relatively new to the game, um, but I, I made my mark first as a modern player. Uh, people are uh, finding my writing and my my um, thought process helpful for the way I look at modern. Uh, lately, as I said, I've been trying to branch into um, other aspects of magic just because it's very interesting. I like the per, uh, constant learning. But uh, I actually started playing magic uh, like most people around uh, elementary and high school here. Uh, I still remember the Inquest magazine that I had where it was detailing the uh, world's finals, I think, between Bob Marr and John Finkel. And um, I've always been, uh, I've, I've always liked thinking about things critically and analytically. And uh, even when I was a kid, um, that magazine talking about the nuances of the Tinker Mirror and how uh, what, what the merits of uh, leaving in a crumbling sanctuary or not, like, it's weird I, I remember these things, but it really stuck out to me, and I still remember it even to date, um, as most people tend to do. Um, in, during the uh, middle years of my uh, life so far, I fell through um, um, playing Magic, but... Um, around the beginning of two, 2017, um, I was like looking at some YouTube videos just because I was working very hard in finance. I didn't have a lot of uh, fun uh, hobbies because I'd been devoting and pouring my soul into making a suitable career for myself. And uh, I started, you know, looking, uh, running into these like Star City Games videos. I'm like, oh, I used to play Magic before. Let's have a look. And uh, believe it or not, the one of the first uh, set of videos I saw was like Ross Marion's uh, Legacy Elves deck. I don't know why how I ran into Legacy, but there, there, there it is. And I was really impressed by the degenerate, high-powered things and combos that um, you can do in Magic. So that's uh, how I got into Magic, really, in, uh, uh, at the beginning of 2017. And um, you played Magic with, during the Inquest magazine era. You still played Magic, but it was just casual, or you just read about it. Very casually, yeah. I, I was starting around um, Urza's Block and Mercadian Mask on the Invasion, etc. I had a nice little uh, Fires of Yavimaya uh, standard deck and I, I'm still very fond of. But yeah, I, I play very tabletopy, and I didn't play competitively until I think the last two years. Got it. So 2017 is when you found Ross Miriam's video. Exactly. And then what happened after that? In, in terms of getting deeper and deeper into magic and, and modern eventually. Yeah, so like I've always been a competitive person. I didn't have a competitive outlet, but I saw that there are these really cool Grand Prix tournaments and Star City tournaments. And I thought to myself that now that I have the means to actually buy cards uh, and have good decks, I thought, why not give it a try? And so without even like testing some uh, any... Um, testing any of the decks or just playing anything in, um, on paper. I just ordered like $1,000 worth of Cheerios cards, um, which is a weird place for a competitive player to start, but it is what it is. Um, I played uh, a lot of combo for the first uh, two years or so. And it's funny, I uh, had a work uh, engagement in Indiana and Star City Games had a, a CG Indie 
uh, two months into my playing career. So I just uh, arranged, a, arranged a trip and just went there, my fir- very first Star City. And I was fortunate to have uh, two pretty hilarious um, camera matches. And I was a win and in away from, um, win and in away from uh, getting on the top eight there, which I think would have been pretty impressive as someone who just started two months ago. How many tournaments had you played leading up to that? Literally one. Grand Prix Vancouver, which was um, the coming out party for Josh Adderleyden and uh, Sam Black and Jerry Thompson's uh, Death Shadow variant. That was the very first uh, tournament where it broke out. That was the only uh, tournament I had played before Star City Games. Wow, that is quite the quite the success early on, I guess, playing tournaments. Yeah. Certainly, I think I I think I have uh, I got pretty lucky during the tournament, but um, I think I have a pretty good handle for how to view these things uh, um, critically and analytically. It, there's a lot of parallels between my work in finance as well as um, my previous uh, background in poker. So I don't think the transition was that hard to make for me. So in terms of the logistics of playing through a tournament and, you know, presenting, sideboarding and registering your deck list, all the fundamental stuff. So that was all pretty manageable the first or second time you did it? Yeah, well, it was like, I'm a fat, pretty fast learner and uh, it, it was, everything was self-made and I just like made it up as I go. But um, I also did consume a lot of uh, content to try to get myself up to speed and uh, it, it it didn't take too long before I had a, like a pretty good grasp of how to sideboard the concept and theory of sideboarding, um, how to like how to play in tournaments and how to pick decks of tournaments, et cetera, et cetera. Right on. And I know that you are now a regular on the First Strike podcast. So please walk me through how that happened, how you got the gig. And yeah, let's just start with that. <laughs> yeah, it was uh, almost by chance. But um, as I said, Magic for me is more of a creative outlet. Um, we hadn't mentioned this before, but I work in finance. I worked in investment banking for a bit. Now I work in mergers and acquisitions. And these sort of like creative writing opportunities don't really come up in that profession. So I had just started doing tournament reports, detailed tournament reports and deck guides on Reddit with no expectations for any uh, compensation or like attention really. Like I know people do this sort of thing or write a blog to kind of garner Twitter followers and try to monetize the social media presence later. But I literally had no expectations of that. I was just doing it for fun. And then um, when I got second place in a face-to-face uh, event in Vancouver, and I did a write-up, uh, Mana Deprived, which is KYT's uh, Reddit account, uh, complimented me on how detailed the uh, article is. I'm like, okay, cool. I, I've heard of you guys before. It would be pretty cool if I could uh, write a guest piece for you. So I pitched that to KYT. KYT ignored me. Um, so well, I, he's a busy I guy. Fought... Yeah. <laughs> he is a busy guy. He's a, very, uh, he's a big deal. So for listeners who don't know, I mean, KYT is Karyun Tom. He's the mastermind behind First Strike. He's a social media person for face-to-face games. He does a lot for Canadian magic and getting Canadian magic player exposure, basically. Exactly. He's a, he's like a, a face of, one of the faces of Canadian magic, uh, I, I would say. And um, I followed up a few times, but he didn't really reply to me. So I'm just like, fine. Um, it's it's kind of drilled into my head from my uh, job uh, searching um, 
experience in finance, you got to be diligent. You got to like be willing to network and reach out to people. And if you get rejected, you get rejected. Uh, that's fine. It's sometimes it's your fault. Sometimes it's like just happenstance. So I kept going. A few months later, uh, I went to Grand Prix Toronto um, for a networking uh, trip. Actually, it was like more work or a professional trip, and it just happened to be the weekend of Grand Prix Toronto. So I, uh, as history would have it, I got second, uh, fourth place. I lost to John Stern uh, in the semifinals, but I had a pretty good uh, performance. And again, I did a tournament report on Reddit, and this time I made sure to pester KYT some more. <laughs> and I'm just like, hey, I just want to follow up. I know you didn't respond to me last time, but... I just wanna. Uh, I just uh, made the semifinals of Grand Prix Toronto. I would love to, you know, write for you guys. So persistence is really the key because, like, don't try not to get offended when people don't respond to you because they might be busy or it might have gotten lost in the email inbox, etc. And I just kept at it. And that time, he finally uh, responded to me and he said, "Hey, you know, it will be. Uh, we will very happily have you on as a writer, uh, do a Grisho Brand co- uh, combo uh, guide." And um, from there, it kind of snowballed into, hey, would you like to be a guest on uh, First Strike? And uh, rest is history, I guess. I'm now a regular. That's great. I enjoy listening and watching you as one of the guests of First Strike on a regular basis. That's awesome, man. Thanks. Um, definitely, we are trying to trying to give the Canadian uh, magic scene a voice and promote Canadian um, magic players and up-and-comers, which is something like I fully support. So I'm glad to be a part of the team. What I really like about the journey you described is that you kind of went through it in the right sequence. The first thing you did is you try to get actually freaking good at magic and you actually got the results. I think that's really important for a content creator who wants to do magic strategy is you have to have the credibility so I like the fact that you first got second place at a GP or you, you did well in this other event. And then after that, then you have basically more credibility. And then following up on the credibility is you're, you were very persistent. You were not pushy about it, but you were like, hey, I think I have a good point of view. I have a voice and here are my thoughts. And I think it's really resonated with people who either listen to First Strike or just consume your content. So I'm, I'm really happy for you, man. You did it, and you kind of did it the right way, is what I'm trying to say. I appreciate the sentiment, James. I, I will disagree a bit there. Even when I was before I was good, uh, so to speak, here, I was just writing. And I was just like trying to think critically about the game and share ideas and try to get better with other people. And uh, I certainly wasn't waiting for a result, so to speak. Yes, the looking at the result of the writer or the uh, content provider is a good shortcut. But I always try to give uh, everyone a fair chance, and I always try to like critically think about, hey, is this content good? Is this content not good? Uh, despite the name value of this author, etc. Like for example, on I consume a lot of Star City Games content, and some of the authors are excellent, but the other ones, like especially like some um, some some of the biggest names out there, which I won't uh, I won't name here. It's very, quote, lazy slash very, like, clickbaity and formulaic. Like, they had to they had to phone in an article because they have to do one every week or whatnot, right? That's the feeling I got, and I don't blame them. Like, it, it might be the highest EV move for them, but I think it, it is important to, like, look at people's credentials, but also important to think for yourself and try to, like, critically think about, you know, is this piece of content good or is this advice good or is this just, like, full of it? And the hive mind's, like... 
um, hive minds just echoing the um, sentiment for no reason. That's true. I remember talking to Jarvis Yu and he was very much about just consuming content from everybody because there's always some sliver of an, a good idea in here or there. It, it's not like you can find one person. It's not like movie reviews where it's like, maybe I'll just go read everything from this one critic because I, I agree with him or her. I think magic is so complicated that you, you kind of have to synthesize different sources, right? Yes. And I would add to that and say like one of the strongest skills that you pick up being like high school and university is learning to learn and learning to process information and distill it into uh, useful uh, information rather than like just trying to consume everything as a whole. Mm -hmm. So that's something that I think um, it would behoove everyone to try and do not only magic and consuming magic content, but also in life as well, because it it does pay to uh, consume a lot of content, but you need to be able to simplify it, summarize it, and then try to apply it in other spots, etc. And learning to question too, because I also see sometimes, maybe it's easy to do, but players will often just come to some kind of conclusion based on what they heard from some well-known pro player or well-known voice. And it's really important to think critically and also question why something was written or conceived that way, right? Exactly. I think you summarized it very well. So you got onto First Strike, and I still see you on there. How have you enjoyed that experience? Yeah, it's uh, it's been a neat experience. Like when I when I just started playing Magic and started writing um, these free Reddit articles, like this wasn't the end end game or the end goal that I had in mind. But you know, now that I have now I have Twitter, now I have uh, I've been on YouTube and podcasts, etc. It's a neat experience from someone who's like worked in a pretty traditional like uh, traditional white collar uh, uh, career and for me to have this like creative outlet and the opportunity to be on this uh, show and write for this website um, I think it's kind of surreal and definitely not within my uh, range of expectations when I started are there any particular learnings that you've had from doing the show yeah <laughs> trying to be a better speaker I guess um I tend to think through things and analyze things, you know, things in a very deep manner, but sometimes. And then KYT's like, "What do you think, Jonathan?" <laughs> well, he does, he does blindside me with the questions sometimes, so he's gotta he's gotta keep me in check and all that. But yeah, like, um, just you, you gotta optimize like your level of depth um, when you're on the show. You don't want to ramble on too much. And I often catch myself rambling on too much. And even though I think I gave a good answer, I'm just like. Right. That, that, that was not digestible. Uh, people are, are listening to this live. Like I should have just like, condensed it and like simplified it, etc. So that, that was definitely one adjustment I've, uh, I've had to make. I see. So you have to do more uh, Skip Bayless hot takes? Oh, man. Don't get me started on Skip Bayless, <laughs> just, Bayless I'm hot just kidding takes. you. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, short and concise is uh, what, I, what, I've, uh, what I've gone for now. Right. That's awesome. Yeah. So Jonathan, I thought what I would also like to do, now that I had a chance to kind of understand your achievements and your work on First Strike, I'd love to just sort of start from the beginning and get a sense for, you know, how you grew up and, you know, your situation, because I know you're ethnically, ethnically Chinese and you grew up in Vancouver, but I'd love to know sort of going as far back as you can remember, maybe tell me a little bit about how you moved through countries and cultures over the years. Sure, that sounds good. Um, so as you said, uh, I'm from mainland China, 
I was born there, but within the first year of uh, my birth, uh, I moved to Japan, which uh, I lived for eight years, I think, uh, in Nagoya. So it was a quite the culture shock uh, as a, ch- a little child already to go from one country to the other and um, f- uh, learn a new language and try to assimilate into culture. I actually did have a pretty good time in Japan. Um, people have asked me, hey, you know, was there anything discriminatory or uh, was anyone hostile at you um, about you being a Chinese person in Jap- uh, Japanese culture? And um not that I remember. I think everyone was pretty good and everyone was pretty nice. Maybe uh, I was young and naive and didn't uh, pinpoint it, but I think that factor is a bit overblown. So how many years did you spend in Japan since your first year of being on this planet? Uh, I stayed there from when I, when I was one to when I was in grade four, uh, at which point I moved, then moved to uh, Richmond or Vancouver. That is Pretty cool. So you actually have kind of an unfair advantage because when you're playing Magic with Japanese players, you would be able to communicate with them just fine. <laughs> I, I'm not that confident in talking with natives, but um, even to this day, it's been 20 plus years since I've been last moved to Japan. But fortunately, I've retained a lot of my Japanese speaking uh, abilities and listening abilities. So um, I've, I've gone back to Japan as a tourist about three times now. Each time, I've had no problem just communicating Japanese. Uh, I'm not sure if it gives me an unfair advantage uh, conversing with other Japanese magic pros, but it's definitely useful. And I've only, I pretty much like self-taught myself and maintained my Japanese language skills through anime and manga, as most people do. There you go. So what what's the fondest memory or experience you had in Japan as you were living there? I think um, just compared to like Canada, it's just like a bit more structured the schooling. Um, everyone, like as most listeners know, like schools in North America, it's more, it's more, uh, free, it's there's more freedom on how you dress. Uh, the lessons are less structured, uh, and uh, I, I kind of did like the more structured aspect of uh, um, elementary schools in J- Japan. You have uniforms, you have a very prescribed la- uh, bag. You have very structured lesson plans. They give you uh, nutritious lunches, etc. And uh, I'm, not, I'm not sure. I kind of liked uh, having that sort of structure there. And also the food. Um, the food in Japan is uh, also very, 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 um, very good. And every time I go back there, I always have like five meals a day, etc. Yes. So, uh, yeah. So for people who haven't, who haven't been to Japan before... Yeah, I, I always joke that um, their convenience food stores are better than 90% of the restaurants in uh, North America. And you think I'm kidding, but their standard for quality is very high. So there you go. I mean, I don't think I admire everything about every culture, but the thing I I admire about the Japanese culture is that they take a lot of pride in doing certain things. Like some things that other cultures just quite honestly don't, care about they really take pride in it so even when you go to a 7-eleven the food is prepared really well and i totally understand where you're coming from because i've been there a few times only as a tourist but it's it's been really cool exactly their their standard for excellence is just like much higher and you know you gotta you gotta keep up or the society will leave you behind kind of thing so um there's definitely pluses and minuses about that sort of culture but if you're a tourist it's definitely a plus do you remember when you were studying in Japan? Like, did you have any particular favorite subjects or teachers at the time? Nah, not not particularly. Um, it was up until grade four, and I remember 
faintly some of my schoolmates and friends and teachers and all that, but the real meat of um, you know how my formative years like really was in Canada. So I don't have a lot of uh, memories um, in Japan. Okay, so tell me about moving to Richmond, which is a, a part of Vancouver in Vancouver, Canada, on the west coast. What was that like when you first moved over there? Was there a huge culture shock of some sort, or how how did it go for you? Yeah, um, it was it was very shocking. Um, I pretty much kicked and fought, trying not to go there. Um, I made uh, a lot of trouble for my parents. I'm sure, just like the knowledge of finally having been um, assimilated in the culture and learning the language, etc. And now I had that I had to move again was a very frightening and terrifying uh, prospect. And although I was only in grade four, I, I could kind of grasp at the magnitude of this uh, move. And um, I was doing everything I can to like try to try to talk my uh, parents out of it. And you know, talking your parents out of a big decision like that as a grade four, it's not going to work. But I did resist a lot, and uh, I wasn't very happy or miserable. Uh, I was pretty miserable for the first uh, few years trying to get acclimated again um, in this new culture. And I didn't have, I didn't do a great job doing so. So for the first like two or three years in Canada, I was really, really not happy about it. But looking back, I'm very grateful for um, uh, my parents' decision to move uh, myself and my uh, younger sister here. They made a lot of sacrifice as the first generation uh, of their kind into a new continent with no friends, no leads for jobs, and just you know, with a pure thought for um, their family and giving their family a new, fresh, and better start for the future. They thought that for you and your sister, you guys might have a better future in Canada, right? Exactly, and when I learned that they really didn't have a lead, they were like my parents were uh, uh, unemployed for like three month um, or three four month um, after the move, and not knowing many friends and not knowing English very well, I could only imagine the sacrifices and you know the pressure that they were under when they made the move. And uh, after thinking about it, and as I've matured, I've like always being like eternally grateful that they may took this risk because I think it was the right decision. That's good. And your parents, tell me a little bit about them. Like what were their backgrounds or what, what kind of stuff did they do? Perhaps, you know, even going as far back as when you guys were living in China. Sure. Um, I would describe my uh, parents as extremely smart, extremely diligent, but just lacking soft skills and how to survive well and adapt well in new environments. Um, so my my father is a PhD in mar marine biology. My mom has a master's in that field as well. And if you can believe it, they're doing, neither of them have, uh, have been applying their PhD and master's in mar marine biology in Canada because one, I don't think the credentials really carried over well in North America. And two, I don't think they knew how to be resourceful enough to network and uh, just find the right fit and the right move and try to see everything that's out there. Um, their generation, um, well, the Asian generation um, uh, for our parents, I think, it's more like, you know, uh, study very hard, go to uh, university, getting to a good university after uh, doing well in your entrance exam and stay at one big company for 40 years and they'll take care of you. Obviously, in North America, it's nowhere near that, right? Yeah. 
it's also changing now in Asia and even in Japan, right? It used to be very much the case, but it's it's more challenging now to have a to be set up in a situation like that. Right, like people have to be more fluid and flexible in their skill set and their um, willingness to move. But um, I, I would say my parents weren't weren't able to adapt fast enough, and I would say that they are um, they're working right now in uh, Vancouver at jobs that severely underpay them for their credentials and smarts. Mm-hmm. But um, it, it's unfortunate, and um, it, I feel their pain. I feel their pressure um, that they're under. But uh, at the same time, like I still have to be pretty grateful and like j- just have to be thankful that they at least did this. I couldn't, I can't be too mad at them at all. And uh, they they still can't speak English very well. That's the other thing. I um, I give them a lot of uh, uh, hard time over. But they're old. Um, they've been through a lot in making this sacrifice. So like I've I've kind of matured and like stopped giving them <laughs> give them hell for it. I know exactly the feeling because my parents also, they were the ones who took the sacrifice so that my brother and I could be in, in Canada. And yeah, they haven't fully assimilated. And when I go back home to Vancouver, I still help them on occasion. They'll be like, hey, James, can you help me with this or that or this letter or write this email? And, you know, you just you just try to do the best you can. I mean, you know, there's a part of me that wishes they could have gone a little bit more adapted to the environment but you know at this point it is what it is so you know i just try to be try to be there for them no i i totally relate i can totally relate to that james um i was i, I always gave him snarky like what are you doing like why can't you do this sort of thing but give them a mature, look and then you still try to do it <laughs> you know yeah but it's ex- extremely unhealthy right and it doesn't help anyone but except like to feed your ego for like a fleeting moment and then you'll feel sh- like shit after yeah so i try to like control that a bit more and just like real realize and think about what they've been through and just try to help out the family as much as you can. Yeah. So tell me a little bit about your sister. You have one, one younger sister. I do. She's uh, eight years younger, but um, we're as close as uh, eight, uh, a sibling of eight years apart uh, can be. Okay. And so she did the whole thing too. Like she was in Japan and in and Canada and what's she up to right now? She's going to uh, the University of British Columbia. She's finishing her degree in business, and uh, we kind of forced her to go to business because she didn't know what to do. She hates it. So now um, after <laughs> she wanted to go into psychology, and I okay. So just, professional magic yeah. player, I think, is the next step. <laughs> Seems logical enough. Yeah, going back to you know your formative years in Richmond or in Vancouver, I mean. You said that the first few years you really didn't want to be there, but then kind of how did you progress? I mean, eventually you got out of it, right? So tell me about what high school was like, and then, yeah, just tell me about that. Yeah, so the culture was, it was a big shock. Um, I think it was uh, 1999 where the handover handoff of uh, Hong Kong from Britain to uh, China happened. And right around the time there was uh, that time there was a inflow of Cantonese people into Vancouver, mm-hmm. and um, as you know, like the uh, Vancouver is a lot. Uh, there's a lot of uh, Cantonese people in Vancouver, and all the friends I had, or the uh, most of the people I had, were either um, Caucasian, and I couldn't speak a lick of English for a few years. I was a slow learner for in terms of language, or they were Asian, but I, there's nothing relatable because I can only speak Mandarin or um, Mandarin or uh, Japanese, and even though I, I 
I ended up befriending a lot of um, Cantonese friends. Some of my um, good, really good friends nowadays are Cantonese. There's that gap where you know they're making a joke or they have a inside uh, joke thing or they they have this like these like saying in Cantonese and everyone's laughing and I'm just like smiling and saying what the hell are they saying kind of thing. So not only could I not really assimilate well with the locals, I also couldn't assimilate well with the uh, local Asian population, so to speak. So I felt pretty alone there for a bit. Yeah, I, I definitely know the feels because, like, even to this day, you know, having grown up in Vancouver, I don't understand any Cantonese, and I always feel like I'm missing out when they're making a joke or laughing at something. And I think it's changed a little bit now because you know there are more mainland Chinese and in, in Vancouver period, but also I, I feel like now there's more Cantonese kids or people that are willing to like try to get better at Mandarin and try to speak Mandarin, and but it, it just wasn't the case at least when I was growing up. Yeah, you can definitely see that, and there's been a shift towards uh, more uh, influx of more Mandarin people now, which I think has its own issues in terms of, um, like, I'm Mandarin, and I've found a lot of mainland people very um, rude or, like, lacking, like, common sense common sense and manners and all that, and there's a lot of hubbub about that in Vancouver as well, but I try to give everyone a fair chance, um, but... It's 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 an adjustment for a lot of Vancouverites. Oh yeah, totally. I mean, I felt so ignorant when I was in Vancouver and then moving to China for the first time because it's it sounds so stupid for me to say this now, but I always thought of mainland China as this this one blob. And it's only after moving to China that I realized that, you know, someone in this province is completely different from this other person. It's kinda of like saying that everyone from China is the same when you know, we don't even think of people on the West Coast or the East Coast as being from the same or even like someone from Calgary versus Toronto. And then and then you add to the fact that like China has gone through this incredible fast paced economic growth and people have all these kind of socioeconomic backgrounds. And it's just there's no two Chinese people that are really alike. So it's really it's really hard to generalize. But I think it's just that when I was living in Vancouver, I really just thought of everything is in broad strokes. And I think it was kind of, I guess, maybe a little bit of ignorance on my part. Yeah, and I can totally relate to that as well. Um, as in life, as in magic, like it's adrenalizing is the easiest well, shortcut to try to like understand something. But if you want to some, uh, understand something fully and you know like be happy with your understanding, you gotta you gotta look at it in a very uh, much more closely. I think that's something you said really resonates with me in the sense that you feel like you're exposed to all these cultures in Vancouver, yet at the same time, you don't really feel like you perfectly fit into one thing. So, you know, you have people that look like you, but they're very different. You have, people, you have friends that are Caucasian, and then they're different in different ways. And it's it's kind of weird because it's almost like people like us who, you know, are are ethnically Chinese and grew up in the West. It's like we have to create our own group because, like, we're not exactly identifiable with some of the other folks that that are out there you know what i mean i totally get what you mean and that's sort of the shell that i kind of stayed in um during high school but um just going to business school and just like trying to understand my after trying to understand my limitation i started to branch out a bit um i i was always an introvert i, I still think i am but you know, sometimes you just gotta, you just gotta accept that. You know, you gotta do better. You gotta be more um, outgoing. You gotta be more accept accepting of other people. I'm not to say I was antagonizing people, but just like be willing and uh, ready to just associate and like hang out and mingle with like other all kinds of different people as well. And for those people who don't know, um, Vancouver is a fairly multicultural city. 
um, a, a lot a lot of the populations Asian, but there's a lot of people from different cultures here and. Um, living in a city like this kind of forces you to um, be more understanding of other cultures and you know hang out with uh, different types of uh, people as well. So I think that's one thing that where I've uh, made a lot of improvement in, but it's still a work in progress. I think. Was there a particular event, or maybe this is risk of generalizing too? But was there any kind of event or a specific point in time where you were kind of like, hey, I have to branch out a little bit and you know get to blend in a little bit better. Sort of. Um, so back in high school and in throughout college, um, I didn't really mingle. I didn't really branch out and meet new people, etc. Because um, one, I was too busy uh, grinding online MMORPGs or um, online poker. But thinking back to it now, it's, I'm just realizing for the first time that may have been an escape mechanism for me not wanting to uh, mingle and uh, meet new people. And back then, I was much more jaded um, about my choice of going to business school, not because I didn't like uh, business or finance, because, but because um, I thought like a lot of the people in my business school were very fake and uh, unpleasant, and just like not maybe? genuine people. Yeah. Pretentious, exactly. Like you, you know what they say about the Wall Street bankers or you know the people in finance and how they are very very preppy very pretentious very arrogant and i just didn't want to mingle with that everyone's doing things solely for to improve their resume and all that so i really didn't appreciate that sort of culture and i just kind of escaped into my my uh, safe space which was gaming i guess and i kind of regret doing that now but it happened okay but had you always enjoyed games is that the first time you started playing was through mmos or like I imagine you must have been exposed to games even at an earlier age, right? Yeah, I, I played a lot of console games. I really like competition. Um, I played a lot of uh, high-level soccer back in high school. And it, w- it was really high school when, I, when my uh, gaming career or games career really took off here um, between grinding uh, Diablo, Diablo or Dota or Final Fantasy XI to transitioning transitioning to something more mature like all, grinding online poker to now magic and uh, board games um i think that sort of games and competitive nature has always been uh burning in my uh within me and it only took me just picking up uh, soccer or picking up uh, diablo to really ignite the fire so to speak in high school do you still keep up with soccer or did you like go fully into online rpgs and didn't look back so regrettably, um, I was um, I made I made the rep teams um, locally. Um, so uh, soccer that's level uh, higher than the normal uh, level, and I feel like I ha- I had a lot more to give given my skills and all that. But unfortunately, I gained like eighty pounds just when I got addicted into addicted with uh, gaming, and because of that, um, I was not. I, I, I was no longer playing soccer, which is something that I really regret, as well as losing control of my health. And ironically, ironically, like three years ago, um, I told myself I'm too overweight, I'm not healthy, but I want to make it a goal to um, play soccer again, even if it's casually. So I did a lot of um, personal training and doing like 5 a.m. boot camps and all that. And I was actually doing very well. I went from 280 pounds to almost 200, but... I hurt myself um, training one day, and I uh, got a herniated disc and had to get a dis- 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 Wow, so that that's set me major. Back. Yeah. 
exactly. Um, I had nerve pain below my uh, below the belt. I could barely walk. I could barely sleep, and uh, that was a miserable year or so before I got my surgery. So it's ironic that I wanted to get back into shape and get back into the game that I loved, and that very act and trying too hard was what got me hurt and set me back literally two, three years. Are you feeling better now with your back and, and that? I'm feeling better now. I'm still uh, overweight again. Um, I'm, I'm, I'm around 270 now. Um, it's hard for me to exercise. I, at least I can walk and sleep normally, but I can't jump. I can't run. I can't do like any hiking, the, like the type of outdoor things I want to do, or obviously play soccer as well. So it seems like a long road ahead, but it's better than before. That's tough. And I, I have no magic bullet, but I just wish you the best in terms of powering through that somehow. Yeah, thanks. I, I think it's just willpower and just doing the little things that you can do. If I can't run, I got to be more disciplined in eating. If I can't, you know, play soccer or go hiking, um, which was a big routine when I was trying to get more healthy, I just got to find a less impactful but healthy way to um, get fit and lose weight. Yeah, for me, the killer is just eating. I have no problem going to the gym and trying to be active, but it's just I am just not disciplined at all when I think I'm more disciplined taking mulligans than I am with like eating, <laughs> eating properly, which is really sad to say, but you know, I got to figure out a way out too. You're lighting the fire in me too, so. <laughs> I'm glad I'm doing that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, um, so business school and then you obviously graduate from that and then you, you've been sort of just basically working in, in Vancouver all this time in, in the finance where I guess you said now it's the, you're doing something for M&A, is that right? Exactly. Mergers and acquisitions are still part of finance. Um, after uh, I got my bachelor's in commerce, I have a CFA charter, which is a charter for um, equity analysts or uh, stock an analysis, basically. Um, a lot of the higher up people in uh, finance has that charter. And I've been working in investment banking. Uh, I, I was working in investment banking, and now I work in uh, mergers and acquisition for a renewable energy company. So I do a lot of um, financing, building, and like helping like fund and operate like these wind and solar and hydro uh, electricity plants that have zero car uh, carbon footprint. What do you think are the most important skills for you to be successful in your in your role right now? Well, the standard is so high these days for in any profession, I, I would imagine, and that includes finance. I think what sets you apart and you know what someone needs to be exceptional is the ability to think critically. I mean, that's kind of a keyword, becoming a keyword for this uh, uh, podcast, but I really truly believe that. Just don't try to take everything at face value. If you have a problem, try to be creative in problem solving. Um, if there, if the numbers don't make sense, they try to like think of all the moving parts and try to like analyze and solve problems, um, not just through normal means. And I think that's a type of skill that really carries over in life as, and, and as well as in magic as well. Critical thinking. Absolutely. And thinking outside the box, thinking outside the box. So it sounds like a lot of things that you do in your everyday job translates to magic, right? Exactly. Whether it's like um, being analytical, critical thinking, attention to detail, and like distilling uh, in, uh, a large amount of information into a um, few useful ones. I think there is a lot of parallels between what I do for work in finance 
as uh, and poker as well as uh, magic. Yeah, I totally missed that. I know you mentioned it. So I'd love to talk a little bit about poker. Like, when did you get into that exactly? As with most people, I think um, I was uh, the moneymaker run um, caught my eyes. And oh, this was the Chris moneymaker uh, at the World Series of Poker, right? Exactly. Uh, it was this random, uh, an unknown person who won a satellite and won the the, the uh, World Series of Poker main event. And that was being televised, which I thought was really cool. The very next year of the main event, it was actually Greg Raymer against uh, David Williams, the same David Williams that uh, is uh, widely known as the Master Chef uh, participant, and of course, um, a Magic player as well. Mm-hmm. And that really uh, caught my interest. And once um, I was um, once I was in college, I got tired of ga- uh, grinding games, I guess, and I sort of wanted to have a hobby that I could perhaps make uh, make some money out of. So that's how I, I got into PokerStars. So given that you you said you have an addictive personality, you went pretty hardcore in poker, I imagine. I did. Um, I poured a lot of effort and time into it. Um, I sort of regret the amount that I've poured into it, but you can't do anything about that. I enjoy my time. It was a good learning experience. And at some point, I thought I was good enough to perhaps go professional, but um, this was in the third and fourth year of um, of my undergraduate degree. But I eventually thought better of myself because... I'm not sure if this will sound arrogant or not, but this was sort of how I felt. I felt like I had the I, I, I had the obligation to use my intelligence and smarts and skills to positively impact the world in, in some way. And I just think that a poker professional doesn't do that. Um, in other than giving um, giving the casino rake and giving money to other people um, and uh, so on and so forth. I, I'm not sure if that's the right way of thinking about it, but um, I've always wanted to um, make an impact in finance, which was the field I liked. And specifically in finance, I've always wanted to sort of uh, work in some sort of responsible investing. So whether it's clean technology for the environment or uh, affordable housing for um, in real estate or like I'm doing right now, renewable energy. Right. Yeah, no, I, I think you're I, I don't think that's arrogant at all. I think it's, you know, everyone it's all subjective, but everyone should do something that they actually feel interested in or passionate about, right? Right. And if your heart's not into it, whether it's just playing poker or being a sports uh, a professional sports better or any type of uh, traditional work that you do, like you are dooming yourself into a life a professional life of emptiness and you're just making ends meet without feeling anything about it feeling good about your feeling good for uh about yourself about it and do you feel like you've now become one of those maybe like your classmates who uh, not the pretentious part <laughs> but just but just like do you find now that you're better at speaking the language and conducting yourself in a certain way that maybe when you were younger you thought you know i didn't need that stuff i guess also by the way you described your relationship with your parents maybe you you're, you're probably better now at having some of those soft skills right yeah, I was basically, it was kind of trial by error. Um, I, as I said, I was an introvert, but I, I knew I liked finance. But um, if you, if people don't know about investment banking recruiting, it's very competitive. Maybe like 5% of the applicants will ever get an interview, let, let alone the job. 
And because I didn't, I was too busy uh, being a degenerate in online gaming and poker. I didn't go through the normal channel for um, to get into the investment banking profession. So I worked my ass off. I generated um, hundreds and hundreds of lists of names um, of like these like finance professionals that I love to just like try to talk to and network through. Um, one time, I. Uh, twice now, I paid my on my own dime. I flew to Toronto where I didn't know many people and tried to network there because uh, Bay Street, um, the Canadian Wall Street, um, Toronto uh, was where the good finance jobs were. And th- this was all out of my comfort zone, try to reach out to people I don't know, only to get rejected and try to network and get in that way. But it definitely taught me uh, important life skills. And I really wouldn't be here um, without having taken that Uh, leap of faith and getting out of my comfort zone. I love that. You know, people talk about the grind and magic, but what you're describing is a real grind where it's not just facing your cards or trying to spike an event, but you're you're, you're really taking matters of your life and your career into your own hands and and getting out there and being uncomfortable, right? Yeah. And this is like one of the biggest differences between the Asian culture and here, I guess. If you want something here, you really got to be proactive, like just like studying and getting good grades and applying through um, online job sites and handing out infinite resumes will get you nowhere. If you want something, be proactive, take steps to, you know, just make that goal happen, you know? Totally. And I think that it's very common. It's becoming more common everywhere. I remember even, you know, when I started my career in Vancouver, other than the co-op, like the first job that I had as an internship leading to a full-time role. Everything else after that was like, who did I know? Like, did I, I knew the hiring manager. It was not like throw your, your CV or resume into the abyss and hope that they call you back. Like there's, there's always something, there's always some networking, right? Exactly. And I, I heavily disliked the networking aspect. Like that was one of the reasons I was a bit jaded about business school because it seemed so insincere and fake, but I kind of like taught, like learned to like think in a way that it's just like making new friends and meeting new people. You don't have to be uh, dishonest about or insincere about it. You know, you're genuinely interested in knowing what they do for a living. You want to ask like real questions and get to know them. And if they can help you out or you can help them out late, at a later date and vice versa, I think it's great. It's mutually beneficial. And yeah, like that's one of the things I did in trying to get out of my comfort zone and reach out to new people and get to know new people. So now that you've had a lot of time in Vancouver and your career and your your base there, tell me some things that you love about Vancouver. Just for listeners who may not have been there, and it's this almost like an advertisement, but I, I you know, I kind of <laughs> want to hear from your own mouth, you know, like what you like about being there on the West Coast in Vancouver. I think it boils down to a few things here. Uh, one of the things I will always highlight is the food. Um, as I. I as someone who's been to multiple uh, big, quote, food foodie cities, I think uh, Vancouver is up there with one of the uh, best food scenes out there. And I've I've been hounding KYT for a while now. Next time he comes, uh, I will show him. I, I tell him that if anyone comes out from out of town into Vancouver, I have an immediate list off the top of my head of at least like 15 spots that are very unique of different cuisines. And it's a must try. And the that's the type of uh, that's the type of uh, food scene that we have. Like we have great Quebecois food, we have great Asian food, as you can imagine. And there's there's everything here, and the food the food scene is popping up. And 
it keeps uh, it keeps growing with new uh, new um, signature restaurants popping up uh, every year. So that's one of the things I would focus on if I were to sell Vancouver to other people. I don't know if you listened to one of the recent episodes that he had of his other podcast, Table for Two with Alexander Hain, but they literally name dropped you and said that we should go to Vancouver and seek out Final Nub, which is your online handle, you know, seek out Jonathan. And then they started name dropping like these restaurants and they got it like 50% right. And I just started rolling my eyes like, oh my goodness. Bread and meat. <laughs> yeah, bread and meat. And uh, oh, this is really nice Indian place. What was it called? Like, I know they're talking about Vijas, but they, they use some yeah, other name and it was really funny. <laughs> Rod, Rod or something. It's 100% Vijas. I knew exactly what they were talking about. <laughs> yeah, I just laughed when I heard that. It was, it was really... But yeah, to your point, sorry, that was a very much a tangent. But to your point, yes, Vancouver <laughs> has awesome, awesome food, right? Exactly. And um, not only that, it's, it's very diverse in the food offering that you have, as well as a very good uh, food, cart, uh, food cart scene as well. So if there's something that you want, we probably have it. That's right. And it's not that far from Seattle. So if anybody actually goes to Seattle, they can always take a two-hour, two-and-a-half-hour drive to uh, to Vancouver. Actually, a friend once told me he drove to from Vancouver to Seattle in one hour, which is pretty freaking Holy. insane. So don't, don't do that. But I think it's going to be like <laughs> two-and-a-half hours. Yeah, no, that's probably right. Um, I, I've taken my trip down to Seattle for various reasons multiple times. Seattle's also got a, a pretty good scene as well, but Vancouver is very diverse. And if anyone's listening from uh, Washington, the Washington State area, hit me up on Twitter or something. I'm happy to give you recommendations. Awesome. Now, the flip side of this is I wanted to also ask you, you know, what Vancouver or Richmond or that area, you know, are there things that you maybe don't love so much about being in Vancouver? Yeah, it's really dull. <laughs> um, <laughs> Once you're done eating, it's really dull, right? <laughs> exactly. Well, well, let me let me touch on the other positive aspect of Vancouver, sure. which is that the outdoor scene is very good. Um, within a few hours of Vancouver, um, there's like tens and tens of very famous uh, hiking trails. If you like skis, uh, skiing, and uh, snowboarding, we have. Um, we hosted the Winter Olympics, and we do have a lot of world-class uh, skiing and snowboarding facilities. And the the scenery is awesome. Just like walking, like spending a weekend um, walking along the waters at Stanley Park or any of the seawalls. Like it's something that you like many people don't get to experience in their time. So that's definitely something I would recommend um, if anyone's coming to Vancouver. On the flip side. There is very little nightlife. There's very little fun things to do. We only have one sport team in uh, in Vancouver. Rest in peace, Grizzlies. And people, I think people um, who come from like Toronto or other American cities, for example, do find that um, it is it is um, there's not a lot of fun things to do. And not only that, people are more cliquey. So people people remark to me that um in toronto for example it's a melting pot of uh everyone from different cultures and they're more re um, ready to talk randomly to strangers and get to know each other mm -hmm. whereas vancouver it's more cliquey people have known each other for 10 20 years and it's more difficult to meet people whether it's uh uh on a friend basis or like romantically as well so that's uh that's a big complaint that people have had about vancouver that it's dull and it's hard to meet people yeah yeah, I can somewhat relate to it, although I've not been there for the past little while. So maybe things have changed, but I suspect probably no. 
Yeah, exactly. Before I move on, I just want to point out one more thing. Yep. Um, per a lot of reports, Vancouver has been notorious for the real estate uh, prices. And um, when, when the world rankings for cost of living and housing prices come out, Vancouver is frequently the, um, in the top five. And I think a lot of that has to do with um, foreign money parking their investment into Vancouver and having empty houses there, which has caused a lot of big problems for the locals. And uh, I would predict there's going to be some uh, talent drain for people who are good and smart but cannot afford to live in um, uh, Vancouver. So that's another um, strike against Vancouver that I have. Yeah, that's a huge issue, right? Because I, I think the government is, or the, the the provincial government is doing things to try and curtail that, but I don't think it's going to be perfect. And I, I, I don't know, like how has, have the, I think they put a few measures into place, like for example, foreign property tax and, and such, but I don't know, has that been working or it's pretty much the same? Yeah, so as you said, the foreign uh, foreigners uh, tax has come into effect, and I think um, the price is actually going down. Um, in this year's report, like we weren't in the top ten of the uh, most expensive housing report, for example, and prices have generally cooled. So it's getting better, but it was a very common and very prevalent problem for the last ten years, at the very least. Yeah, there's probably still a lot more to do, and I also have seen some news about money laundering and i guess that's not a new issue but like there's always been money flowing into canada and vancouver illegitimately and the government's always you know trying to to crack down on that but it's it's uh it's a lagging indicator right like there's always things that you know you're you're trying to do but it might be too late or it's already too systematic exactly and i i think there was a funny story i'm not sure if it's true or not but um they they instituted a rule at the casino where you can't bringing more than $50,000, and Drake wanted to be uh, gambling at the park, which is uh, one of the biggest uh, local casinos, and they wouldn't let him be, um, because he would, he wanted to bring in over the limit and whatnot. It's actually an excellent casino uh, in terms of um, having a modern look, Vegas look, but um, every time I went to um, gamble at the park or at Edgewater, its predecessor, there was a vibe of just foreign money and mm-hmm. people are throwing around those big amounts of money uh, very uh, haphazardly. And uh, I wouldn't be surprised if that's the case in terms of money laundering. Yeah. What is something that you would tell the younger Jonathan, if you could go back five years and say something to him? Don't be so jaded. Um, be have, have a more open mind. Um, explore. Be more willing to meet new people and explore new ideas because a lot of uh, my family does tell me that I'm um, I, I've been very close-minded and I make snap judgments and I don't want to meet new people or explore new ideas. And although I didn't like hearing about it, that's turned out to be very correct. And I've, I'm trying to apply that more in life as well as well as in magic, in terms of um, just meeting new people and like talking to strangers and sharing new ideas and so on and so forth. What is something that you feel right now that you would love to tell the future Jonathan five years into the future? Like if you could have a time machine and go five years in the future, what would you tell him to make sure that he doesn't forget something that you're holding on to right now? Just uh, live a bit more, just live more liberally, just live liberated rather than being constrained to structure and uh, just Work on your work on your health. You know you're you know that the best version of the person that you want to be is in there, and keep working at it, whether it's magic or life or professional or a relationship, and just never never don't relent 
And if there are obstacles, just try to deal with it analytically. And uh, yeah. Do you have any magic goals for the next three to five years? Yes, I like to get back to the Pro Tour um, again. And I would like to not owe three my draft like I did the first time. Uh, if I could be honest, uh, as I was saying, that I was a modern specialist. I had never played a standard or a game of standard or uh, limited before Pro Tour Dominaria. And I pretty much felt outmatched. I had no chance. I was the whale in, at the poker table. So now I want to brush up on my uh, standard skills, limited skills, which is what I've been doing. And I really want to make it back there, even though the emphasis on the Pro Tour has been lessened significantly. And I know it's very uh, low EV to make it to the P uh, PT, but it's still a personal goal of mine. How do you see your relationship with Magic, you know, other than getting back on the MC or the PT? How do you see your relationship with Magic evolving over the next six to 12 months, if it needs to? After a lot of thinking, I realized that I use Magic and I've used um, previous endeavors like video games and online poker and sports to kind of escape the issues, that the obstacles that I have in life. And I feel like um, I'm going through some hard times at work and in life right now. Um, but And as a result, that's really um, forced me or gotten me into pour more of my time and you know, heart and soul into magic, which I don't think is healthy behavior. As I said, I think I have a pretty addictive, uh, addictive personality, and I really need to control the time and the time and effort I put into magic, and just play a very, uh, just play the game very efficiently and spend an efficient amount of time without being a degenerate. So I want to strike a good balance between magic and life. And I want to make sure that uh, either side is not going to cannibalize the other. And I think it's uh, as people who have, for people who have played online games or played these sort of like table games or poker or sports and who were really into it, like striking a balance um, bet uh, between your normal life and your game life and um, controlling your urges, I think it's a very tough thing. I still haven't really learned to do that even as uh, at age 30, but I hope to do that um, in the next few years. Who's your best friend in Magic and why? I'd probably say uh, Marcus Thibault. Um, he's been, um, we kind of chatted each other up in Grand Prix Toronto. Actually, the first time I went to my uh, local game store, um, I, I got to say that the Magic scene in general has a, can have a cliquey sort of atmosphere where people are only talking uh, talking amongst themselves and people would only talk to you if you had any results or if people think you're good. And if you're a newer player playing a janky deck, people won't talk to you. And that was definitely my experience at first. But uh, the first time I went to play in at LGS, uh, I played him in one of our FNMs and uh, he, was, uh, he struck a conversation uh, and he was uh, willing to talk to me and chat through uh, some things. And at JP Toronto, where I top aided, we talked and talked a bit more. And um, just listening to his uh, aspirations about um, making something out of magic for himself and uh, having, um, having, having sacrificed some things in life just so he can start streaming and um, try, to, try to get into competitive magic and get on the pro tour scene, it re really resonated with me because, as I said, um, 
I had fleeting thoughts about going pro in magic for uh, in poker, for example, and the more disciplined uh, part of me got the better of that, so to speak. But I really respect that people that do try to make something out of themselves in this silly children's card game. So that really, I re- really respected that, and we befriended each other um, as a result of that, and we talk every day about uh, magic ideas, nonsense, etc. And yeah, he he's probably the, the person in uh, Vancouver Magic that I talk to the most. That's awesome, and I think he's going to Barcelona too, right? He is. So he, um, he I think he had had been playing for over fifteen years. I don't think he had. A, um, a big win, a tournament win, so to speak, until last year. Um, if for the viewers or for the listeners that doesn't know, uh, I teamed with Marcus and Cyrus Corman Guild, who was also a, a guest in on this po- podcast, and we won the Star City Games Vegas uh, uh, tournament last year, which was great. And two months after that, Marcus qualified uh, to to the Pro Tour London um, through, through an online qualifier for the first time, which was very, very happy for. And uh, coincidentally, uh, just a month ago in April of 2019, he qualified um, He qualified for a PT Barcelona using the Red Deck, Red Deck Wins de- uh, deck and Cyborg Guide that I had kind of pioneered for the first few weeks of Standard. So I'm very, very glad that his uh, hard work is finally paying off. I'm really happy to hear that because for his success, but also the fact that you guys are have kind of a fellowship you guys are helping make each other better right exactly and you know it's i always like this sort of like symbiotic uh, relationship whether it's in life in uh, work professionally or in games like this it's so easy to just like hold yourself up into the internet space and just uh, uh scream into the echo chamber and only take that what the echo chamber tells you um, at face value it's very helpful to have a sanity check have a similarly thinking person um that you can bounce ideas off of and you know tell you if you're full shit or tell you if your idea if your crazy idea is actually good so that's one of the level up moments for me in magic is actually trying to talk to people trying to befriend people in magic who are good who, who i know have good ideas and bounce some ideas off even if um the idea seems pretty silly and ridiculous in per, uh, at first value uh, at, at first look on that note are there any shout outs that you want to give to anybody at all in the community yeah, sh- shout out to Marcus Tebow. Um, as I said, he's uh, he's the friend in Magic I talk to the most. He's, I think he's been very dedicated for um, in Magic and always trying to improve. And you know, from in the two years that I've known him uh, in the Vancouver Magic scene, he's been a uh, he's been. I've seen him like organize rides and organize cards, or just organize testing sessions for first-time Pro Tour uh, user, uh, competitors, and that's something I really respect. And um, it's really happy. I'm really happy for him to have finally have found some success. So definitely a shout out to him. Um, shout out to uh, Cyrus for being a very good teammate. Uh, it's funny we had not known each other. We didn't know each other until 10 minutes before a Star City game started in Vegas, but we clicked right away. Uh, obviously, we won the tournament, and we really um, gelled, and we still talk to each other on a, a almost daily basis uh, we, um, about life and uh, magic and nonsense. And uh, shout out to First Strikes uh, Nation, First Strikes Podcast, my co-host, as well as KYT. Um, 
just just getting on the uh, the getting into the first strikes podcast and being part of the first strikes family has been a great experience for me um it's great that i can be um, making content and uh, producing video with the some of the brighter minds of uh, canada as well as the uh, one of the faces of uh, canadian magic in kyt as well so it's been a very uh, uh very fun and interesting experience for me jonathan thank you so much for taking the time today to have this conversation i feel like i've learned a little bit more about you and your background and i hope that uh you and you enjoyed it as well I had a great time, James. Thanks for having me here. As always, take care of yourself and be well. Cheers.